try and filter them and get through as many of them as possible. We've received a whole bunch of questions and we have some that um, we'll get started with. But um, yeah, feel free to, as I, as I mentioned, just send them through as you want to. But obviously on the panel, we've got Tim Campbell, who's going to answer all the hard questions. We've got uh, Kevin and Marilyn Brett, and we've got Dr. Patricia, who as well uh, are going to answer questions. And so, yeah, we're going to have a whole bunch of fun. You seem really relaxed now. All the tension's been taken out. We're all, uh, we're all relaxed and just ready to enjoy this time. So it's going to be good. As, as we've already mentioned, just to start off, we do have resources that are available, which are some of Dr. Patricia's books. Um, if you haven't already checked that out, you should go and, and see that after the session and uh, just, just have a look at some of the books there and purchase them. That would be great. But let's get kick-started with our first question. And I'll, I'll direct this one to Patricia firstly, but why is it important to talk about sex and sexual integrity in church and in the family home? Why, why do you... Why do you believe that's a really important thing that we need to do? Thank you. I'll just give a quickie on that and I'll pass it on to you guys because it's just as important to know what you think. I mean, the point is I can answer that just in the way that I, I responded when I was asked by a professor in the university, how can you be a sexologist and still be you know, calling yourself a Christian. And the way I answered was this. I said, Professor, you and I both study sex. But I have a personal relationship with the creator of sex. And that, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is what it's all about. You know, the world talks about sex, but we have a true relationship with the person who created it. And therefore, we should, it is our duty to talk to our children. And in some ways, it is our duty to portray that to the world. Yeah. And so that's why we need to talk. What about you? I mean, like, what is your... What would I know? I mean, <laughs> I'm totally intimidated sitting up here. <laughs> sitting next to you. After that session, well, I could just say sex is good and uh, I've got two kids. and uh, yeah, I, I just think... What you just did before was unbelievable, yeah. and uh, Thank you. and we just don't Thank hear you. it in the church. I've been in the church a long time, as most of you know, and I've never heard anyone speak about it except my mother gave me a book to read when I when I became a uh, got into puberty, and my father didn't say a word, but my mother gave me a book. Here, read this. So that was kind of I learnt most of it in the primary school yeah. yard. But yeah. it's just so refreshing to have someone like you come and, oh, and just uh, unpack thank it you. and uh, yeah. take all the weirdness out of it. Fantastic. Yeah, well, when, when we got married, I mean, it was quite funny because neither of us had had any input from our parents at all. I didn't even get a book from my parents. <laughs> uh, and in fact, I remember asking my mother um, one day, I actually came into the lounge room where my mum was sitting with a whole bunch of her friends, kind of like a ladies' tea party. So they're all having, you know, china tea cups and all of that stuff. And they're all sort of chatting. Da -da 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 -da. And as they were talking, I said to my mother, because I had been in the bathroom trying to squeeze a pimple, and it said on the bottle, do not use in genital area. 
And I thought, I thought, what's that? So I went through to the lounge room. I must have been about 13 or something. Because <laughs> that's when you get pimples, isn't it? Round about then. So I said to my mum, and, and I must have used a bit of a louder voice, but anyway, <laughs> bear in mind, all these ladies are talking. So I said, Mum, what are genitals? <laughs> well done. And honestly, all the teacups slammed down on the saucers. <laughs> and all the ladies looked at each other. Like this. And my mother, no lie, my mother took me by the ear, pretty much, and dragged me out of the room into the kitchen, shut the door and said, never ask me a question like that ever again. And she never gave me the answer even. <laughs> so that was, my, that was my impression. So I grew up thinking that, oh, sex is kind of, you know, you don't talk about it, it's, it's dirty. That was the impression. And I never heard anything in the church ever. So when we got married, we were like... We didn't know a thing. And so I think it's so important. And so when we had children, yeah, we did manage to have children. That was amazing. <laughs> but when we had kids, we decided that we didn't want our children to grow up as ignorant as we were and having the wrong information and having the, having the completely wrong um, impression of what sex was all about. So we always believed in giving our kids the why behind the what. We decided we're not going to tell you not to have sex, we're going to tell you why you shouldn't have sex. And, um, yeah, I think it was really important. It's fantastic what you did. Brilliant. Yeah, that's so good. So how do you start talking to your kids about sex and how do you teach them about the biblical view as opposed to what they hear in the schoolyard? I think you, Madeline, you already started. How about we hear the on-the-ground version <laughs> before we get the professional version? Well, the way that we started... Um, and we, we started with an agreement between us that this is what we wanted to do, that we were going to have an open relationship with our children and, and talk honestly about these things. And even though it was awkward for us because we hadn't grown up with being open about it, we decided we, we needed to do it with our children. So I was putting on my makeup one day and Laura was, I believe she was... She was probably four, I think, round about that time. And Emma would have been two. And they were sitting on my bed watching me put makeup on. And then Laura just goes, Mom, you know how you told us that babies come from, like, you, you've got um, a, an egg and, and, and Daddy's got a, a seed or something like that, I think she said, or a sperm. She says, how does the sperm get into the egg? <laughs> like, thanks God, I start with a really easy one. And I think I basically told her just in simple terms, using the right words, you know, vagina and penis. And, and she kind of went, oh, okay, what's for dinner? <laughs> You know, so we just found just, just as they asked the questions, we just answered as honestly as we could using the, the right words. Yeah. yeah. And I think that what you were saying is so wise because one is what you're saying is being reactive. You know, they ask a question and you bring and you answer it 
honestly at an age-appropriate yeah. level. Yeah. And they'll go, oh, that's okay, good, okay. and let's move on, what's for dinner? And, <laughs> and the other thing is, of course, being proactive. And in today's world, it's also important to be proactive with little children, because the reality is that if you don't talk to them, they're going to get it in the playground that's and okay. sadly from pornography. And you know, they're going to get it in primary school from pornography. Uh, just a quick uh, quest, uh, little story here. I was uh, speaking in one of the country towns, maybe in Tamworth, and their kids go by school bus a lot, right? So one farm family, they weren't planning on coming, but she, the lady told, the mother told me that that day her little boy, eight-year-old, came home and said, in the bus today, the boys were looking at prawns on their phone, and they asked me to come and look at prawns, but I told them I'm allergic to seafood. So, praise God for allergies, you know. So, the reality is that kids are going to see it and learn from pornography. So, which is why you need to start early, start with the right words. As Madeline said, your boy has a penis and a scrotum, not a Willie or a Kevin or whatever. And your girl, your daughter, your daughter has a vagina and a vulva. Don't worry about the clitoris. You probably haven't found yours anyway. So, don't bother your little girl with that. So the reality is tell them the right words. And especially, there are two reasons why it's important to give your children the language of the right words. And one is if somebody shows them porn, then they can recognize that this is not good. It's this special part of God's body, God's created goodness, this, bit, this body that we don't play with and show people. The other thing is any form of, sadly enough, any form of sexual abuse that if somebody touches them or does something, they have a language to tell you what sure, is happening. Exactly right. So it's very important. And be age appropriate. It doesn't matter if it is a little too much information. Again, one quick story before we move on. These are all things that people actually tell me at talks like this. So if you have any stories, please tell me during lunch. I'll store them for later. There's, um, <laughs> In a family, grandpa was in the workshop, and the little grandson, four-year-old, comes in and says, uh, what's, uh, grandpa, what's couple sex? So the grandfather thought, well, I guess I drew the short straw. So he sat down, and he did the whole explanation. And then he asked, well, darling, why are you asking? He said, no, grandma, Nana said lunch will be ready in couple sex. <laughs> so, you know... It is okay. I mean, you know, a little extra information doesn't harm anyone. Okay. Oh, that's so good. You, you touched on, uh, on porn, and I just wanted to ask about, in regards to porn and, and masturbation, what, what is the effects that that has on people, and how, how can you help somebody to be able to, to break free of that? Yeah, I'll talk to porn first. I'm pornography, as we said, and I'm make this really short because it's a very complex area. Um, pornography is anything that is sexually explicit and created to titillate and arouse. We are used to thinking of it on our iPhones and the laptop. Today, it's in comic books. Anyone heard of anime or hentai comics? Some of you. 
you are innocent up here in the mountains. If I go to a school and I talk to year six kids, they know. And so comic books, year fives, year sixes would know. Even sexting, you know, sending pictures, nude pictures. That's a form of self-created pornography. Today there's three dimensions. There's visual porn, interactive pornography. There's a never-ending increase in this area. What does it do? It rewires your brain. It actually takes over the dopamine circuits we were talking about and wires them in a way, even leaving sort of different connections so that after a while, your brain only recognizes porn as satisfying in terms of sex. So normal sexuality, normal human beings no longer do it for you. People become a commodity. A man using porn will look on a woman and it only triggers those sex, the porn circuits. So we are increasingly seeing girls, young girls, teenagers who are saying their boyfriends will ask them to give them anal sex. And that's because pornography is driving that to show women enjoy it. And therefore, it's a normal part. The sad thing, you know, again, stories after I did a school talk, to have a 14-year-old who came to me and said, my boyfriend, with tears in her eyes, my boyfriend said he'll kiss me if I give him anal sex. What have we done when our children are you know, expecting this kind of behavior. It's porn-driven. We are seeing an increase of child-on-child -child sexual activity in primary schools. Where do they know? It's a kind of monkey-see-monkey-do. Somebody shows them porn, or they come across it. So it rewires the brain. It, it take, after a while, the, what we call the sensitized circuits get numb, and you need more and more and more, and therefore it becomes really an addiction. It moves into addiction territory. And even the part of your brain in self-control, this front bit, research shows will shrink. It actually shrinks. You can measure it. So you lose control. So when people say, I can't help myself, it's actually true. Your brain wiring is such. So that's what happens. That's why early detection, early, you know... We worship a God who promises renewal of our mind. Yeah. This same wiring can be turned around. Mm. It will not happen overnight. Mm. But it is important that we recognize that if you know somebody who's struggling with it, or if yourself you're struggling with it, please ask for help. Mm. Please talk to a brother or sister in Christ. Yeah. Because you, it's very difficult to do it on your own. You need someone to be accountable to, to walk with you. Every time you're tempted, someone you can turn to. Now, if there's anyone here who really wants help, email me. I have a little handout that I can send, one for singles, one for couples, or maybe I'll send it to Felicity and, you know, you guys can have it as a resource. And it's really important because you need to let go. You need to stop. There's nothing called a little pawn or good pawn. Any pornography use starts wiring your brain. And so you have to stop using it and you have to learn to deal with those cues or those temptations 
or what we call triggers. So when you feel like it, that's where accountability partners, you have somebody you can call and talk to. Now, all this is really important. Yes, you can set filters on your on your phone and on your computer. You can set out accountability software, but internally, the heart change is really important. You asked about masturbation. Do we want to go straight into... Let's go That's for really it. bad. I mean, we're going to sit up here and say, do you want to go straight into masturbation? <laughs> you can't get away from these things when you're talking about sex. I mean, masturbation is a really interesting thing because basically it's touching your body to get satisfaction. I mean, God creates good things. Your genitals feel good. If they didn't feel good, we wouldn't have sex, would we? I mean, why would we bother if it was as boring as doing your tax return? I mean, you know. We have sex because it feels good. God creates good things. I mean, penises look wonderful. Their plumbing is amazing. I'm also an anatomist, so I mean, you know, I really admire God's work on the penis. And... It's very sensitive, especially the tip. So God created it that way. Especially little boys, you know, it's kind of hanging around. And so they find it when they're young and it feels good. So you touch it. That's not masturbation. Masturbation is when you actually touch it intentionally for pleasure. Now, women, it's not quite as easy to find and, you know, stimulate your genitals. I mean, you know, like the clitoris. Don't you just love the clitoris? It's the only organ, she said, yes. <laughs> the only organ in the body that does nothing other than hang around having fun. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing how God left it on the design. But the problem is that so touching your genitals is not the big deal. I mean, we don't want to be ashamed of a part that God created, especially for children. If you say, don't touch, don't touch, do you think the genitals are bad? Whereas in, actually God created it for a good purpose of making babies. So what then is the problem? The problem is that it's hard to touch yourself and have get a satisfaction or orgasm without thinking sexual thoughts. And the Bible is clear. That's lust. If you're fantasizing about someone and masturbating, and having an orgasm, then what you're really doing is you might as well be having sex with that person. That there lies the problem. I know I've talked to people who said, oh, I can masturbate thinking about the wind through the gum trees. <laughs> That's rare. <laughs> Maybe. I'm not saying no. I mean, you've got wonderful gum trees here, but... <laughs> That's rare. Usually, it's tied in with sexual thoughts. So that's a concern. The second concern is, of course, it can become habit-forming because it's a feel-good activity. It wires into your brain. Every time I'm stressed, I'll masturbate. And so it can become a habit. So for all those reasons, we tell people, look, it's not a wise thing to every time you feel like a bit of tension, I'll masturbate. But on the other hand, if you occasionally do find yourself stimulating yourself and, you know, don't feel ashamed and guilty about it either. Just take it to the Lord and say, you know, help me deal with this. Mm. Do you like to add something? Gentlemen, you've been very quiet. <laughs> he asked the question. 
I feel like asking the question's the best thing I can offer. (laughs) (laughs) We will change the direction a little bit with this next question. Ah, one way of getting out of that. (laughs) It says, what should be the church's response to the changing standards within the community around cohabitating relationships rather than commitment to marriage as the best way to live together? Do you guys like to... Well, I think, you know, the truth sets people free. And I think, you know, you've got to stand for a a point of righteousness and stand for what is right. But I think it's how you say it and how you do it. And you've got to build relationship with people so they actually hear what you're saying. If you come in like the old religious used to do and slap you across the head and say, stop living like that, well, you've gained nothing. Rebellion rises. You'll do the opposite. But you've always got, like with our kids, you put the why behind it. You tell them why we don't do that. And this is the reason why we don't live together. And you don't just lay scripture and religious law on them. You actually build the purpose behind why God made us to be intimate and what marriage is about. And so it's got to come, it's got to come from a relationship, personally. That's great. (laughs) Off the back of that, this is a great question. Someone's asked, what do you say to someone who isn't a Christian and believes they are bisexual? So you're dealing with a different kind of thinking, a theological thinking, but how do you impact someone by basically taking your beliefs and being able to kind of be a voice into their world and also love them at the same time if they've got a different view view to you in that way? They are a Christian? They are. They're not a Christian. Okay, well, <clears throat> okay, they're looking at me, so I guess they know. <laughs> the point is, I, I, I'll, I'll broaden this question, and I'll tell we live in a very gender-challenged world. And so I'm going to just give you, since I have everyone and I'm, you're captive here, I'm going to give you the one-and-a-half-hour talk on gender in two minutes, okay? <laughs> so the, the reality is gender is incredibly complex, So we need to be careful in speaking into this space because we live in a world that challenges everything we stand for when it comes to sex and gender. This is the reality. We speak out and say God created male and female beautifully complementary in brain and body and identity and whom we are attracted to. So we are created male and female. This is biological sex. So it's a kind of genital body from chromosome, from egg and sperm, right down to what our body looks like. That is biology. We are created male and female. We have an identity as male or female or female, that's our brain identity, remember the cisgender thing, where they match, we are attracted to someone that is sexual orientation, and in God's pattern, we are attracted to a person of the opposite sex, and we behave in a way that is keeping with our biological sex, that's called gender roles or gender behavior. Now, every one of those is totally confused in today's culture. So we are told that when it comes to biological sex, yes, 
in our broken world, in our post-fall world, not everything, everyone has a clear male-female development. Things go wrong right from the chromosomes right up to what hormones and everything is. This is called disorder of sex development or intersex. That's about one in 4,000 to 5,000 children who have those what we call ambiguous genitalia or disorders, disorders. The common word is intersex, so the LGBTQIA I there is intersex. Now, very quickly, two things I'd like you to know. One is you cannot have a functioning male and functioning female genitalia. It is not possible because it develops from the same sort of set of tubes. You'll never look at a microphone the same way. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like there's one set of tubes which under the testosterone will become male and without testosterone becomes female. You can't have functional this and that. You have a, something in between that is ambiguous. Two, intersex is not a third sex. It's not a third sex. It is where that pure male-female hasn't developed correctly, as it should. Okay, gender identity, who you think you are, this is the transgender. Gender dysphoria, I'll give you all these words very quickly. Gender dysphoria is when a person's brain idea of who they are doesn't fit with their body and causes distress. That's dysphoria. Transgender is just an um, umbrella term of all those terms and everything else, anyone who is confused, basically. Sexual orientation is who am I attracted to? Am I attracted to men or women? In God's plan, you're attracted to the opposite sex. In same-sex attraction, you're attracted to the same sex. Somebody who calls themselves bisexual is attracted to both men and women. Some people would call themselves fluid, which means I will decide in the next five minutes whom I'm uh, attracted to right now, and that might change in 10 minutes. So fluid and uh, all sorts of things. And there are people who say, I am asexual, which means I'm not sexually attracted to anyone. So then, then there's gender role, which is how do I behave? Most of us can look at each other and say male, female, without necessarily asking, what are your genitals like? And so that is like how I show myself to the world as a male or a female, gender role, behavior, how you behave. Even that is challenged in the world, and you can be androgynous, andromale, gynae, female, so you can sit here and go, I don't know who that person is, whether it's a boy or a girl. So all this is confused. How do we speak into this as Christians? How we speak into it is, one, we know the con our conviction of God's word. But two things. One, God created man in his image. We are all created in the image of God. Yes. It is not a us and them. So Christian, non-Christian, cisgender, transgender. No, we are all created in the image of God. Therefore, we are all valuable in God's eyes. And we need to remember that. Because increasingly, we will be told that we are the abnormal ones. Because we dare to believe that sex is binary and God created it. Are you with me so far? It's really important we understand that. Everybody is created in God's image. Everybody is broken yeah. and sinful yeah. and have wrong desires. Yeah. 
So we are all in this soup together. So therefore, we can love our bisexual, our omnigender, asexual, our transgender brothers and sisters. Friendship and love is not dependent on a person's behavior. We love because Christ loved us first. And that love underpins. So when you're talking to a non-Christian who's bisexual or anything else of the 70 categories on Facebook, you love like Christ loved you. Friendship. The bisexual is a bit of the iceberg up there. Underneath is a hugely distressed, sinful human being. Our prime need is not to get our gender sorted out. Our prime need is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our hope for this person. So you love the person. And if you are questioned, then you share what you believe in. Now, I am a sexologist. Most of my friends are atheists and transgendered and prostitutes and sex workers. Oh, God, you must think I'm so strange. But anyway, trust me, I have some cisgender ordinary friends too. And so the reality is that we need to be aware of that, that the world will challenge us, that we cannot love someone unless we affirm what they are doing. And we are saying, we love you as Christians, irrespective of your, what your behavior is. Can you understand that? Because you will increasingly be told, if you don't accept what I'm doing, you hate me. And you know where that goes back to? My sexuality is my identity. And we are saying, we want, your, we want to help you find a true identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a long answer for what was a one-sentence <laughs> question. Would you like to add anything to that, Tim? You're a young man. What have you faced? It is Tim, isn't it? Yeah, it is. yeah. yeah, absolutely. I'm like, okay, I'm going in the wrong team, right? <laughs> yeah, that's actually... Would you like, um, you're a young man, so you probably live in this cultural soup. Yeah, I actually have a good story about that. My sister is um, dating a guy who's gender fluid. And so um, when I found out, I saw on Facebook, and I was like, what? He's got hair and a makeup? Like, I was just like, whatever. And then we had, we'd had some great chats. And when the whole um, discussion about um, uh, same-sex marriage and the, and the plebiscite, we sat at dinner time and he got up and walked out and we started talking about it because he thought I would hate him. And I remember having a conversation. I said, I fully accept you, mate. And you're so welcome in our family. We might have different beliefs, but I accept you. And since that moment, he's been so different to me. And he just thought that because I was a minister or I was at church that I thought this way. But I said, look, I might have different views, but I love you. And since then, we've been so good. I might not like what he puts on Facebook. I might think it's weird, yes. But I still love him and, um, and accept him for who he is. So. Okay, got another question. Uh, this is a bit of a long one. So um, how does... Um, someone's been in a couple of relationships um, with Christian guys and they are, they're pretty much asking, how do I know in future relationships have I met the right person? Um, they say here they don't like being cuddled a lot. They don't like being like, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, kind of like... Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Uh, try, not trying to be like, like, you know, demanding on that person. I think they might have had a couple of relationships where they were a bit demanding. So how do they know they've met the right person and how do they travel that, that road of finding that right person? 
That's a tough question, isn't it? Yeah. Like it's, it's, Kevin's an it's, expert it's, on that. It, it's, an expert. <laughs> it's only because I've been engaged three times. I'm number three. <laughs> it is complicated, isn't it? How how relationships can develop, and uh, I, I think it, I, I think it would come down personally to one thing, and that is the whole issue of self acceptance. Yes. Coming to a point where you love yourself, and you accept yourself, and you love your creator. And you get that sorted out, and I think the rest falls into place. I think we sometimes put things back to front, the cart before the horse, and we're trying to get it all figured, but we've just got to come back to that point where I think self-acceptance. If someone can love themselves and accept themselves, then a lot of these other issues, I think, resolve. They don't resolve themselves, but it's a lot easier to sort it out. And I think, you know, growing up, I was incredibly insecure, and, uh, and so that was my big issue, coming to a point of self-acceptance. Yeah. Do you uh, mean, Kevin, that's, oh, sorry, no, uh, that when you don't accept yourself fully, you're actually looking for someone else to complete you yeah. in a sense? Yeah. Well, we, talk, so we have this concept, I've got to find my other half, which is a nonsense. You know, we're not half people walking around, we're whole people yeah. walking around. So we're not trying to, you fulfil me, what was that movie, you fulfil me, like when someone else can't fulfil you or you complete me, you've got to be complete in yourself, you've got to know who you are, love yourself, be secure in yourself and that's a process, for every one of us it's different, but, but that process of self-acceptance, being comfortable in your own skin and then I think relationships, you know, because we put demands on people from our own lack but when, when we love someone and we're a whole person, then we're going to give that person our very best. Yeah. I think you said some really wise things here. And one of them is that, you know, you cannot find somebody who is your soulmate. That, I think, is how do you know you found the right person? The Bible gives us only three things. One is a person should be the other sex. Two, not a close related relationship. Relative of you, brother, sister, whatever. Most importantly, do not be yoked unequally. So, be a Christian. So, the reality is that the, 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 the foundational requirements are fairly basic. You know, so how do I know? Do you need to know? Firstly, I mean, you cannot ever find anyone who will totally satisfy you. As we said, only Christ will satisfy. You will never find a soulmate. If you dare to ask a husband or a wife to be that person for you, it will fail. Because we are all fallen human beings. And we can't. Ask my husband. He's lived with me for 45 years and known. He's already laughing. (laughs) And we were friends for five years before. And you see, that's the other thing. How do I know that we found the person, that person will be your best friend. You know, for those of you who are not married and you're thinking like marriage is like full of sex. (laughs) Talk, talk. (laughs) I like that, Rachel. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) You know, ask your married friends like how much actually is antiques in the bedroom. It's, It's little. But what actually keeps you together, that Passional love of friendship. And so marry your best friend. Which you might have marriage proposals after this during lunch. (laughs) 
And so that's it. Don't, don't try to wait for this soulmate. Basic things, you know, similarities, that's attraction. You feel some attraction. They pass the sort of Bible test. Can you be friends? Can you see yourself with, what's that old Beatles song, isn't it? Will you still love me? Will you still something at... Don't you love it? It tells us our age, doesn't it? I mean, can you see yourself at that time, you know, being good friends? Great. Um, I was just going to ask in regards to dating, for people that are in a relationship, what's some advice for ma- maintaining boundaries and making sure that they don't cross physical boundaries? And what would you identify as, all right, that's crossing the line in a dating relationship in a physical kind of sense? I'll take that, and then since you brought up children, I might throw it to you for what (laughs) practical advice you gave them. Um, One of the things I tell young people is there is no sort of legalistic line thus thus far and no further. You don't sort of draw a textile line on the waist and say, that's the line, no further down (laughs) than that. That's legalism. We live by, and we don't live by our desires. Then what do we live by? We, we understand that God created the body good, and therefore the body tells us when we should be careful. That's called a sexual response. What happens in your body when you are sexually aroused? Now, we talk about this even in our baby book to children, because they need to know that, you know, especially growing up by the book, which is the kind of teen puberty book, when you are sexually aroused, your body tells you. Gentlemen, boys are really lucky because you've got an inbuilt barometer that tells you you're sexually aroused. And it says, whoa, you're aroused. Girls, you're not that lucky, but the reality is we do know because our genitals kind of, you know, wake up and get all tingly and brain says, ooh, that's nice. So when you feel aroused with someone, that's an ambulite that says pull back. Because if you keep going, then especially teen years, your brain isn't fully developed. In the teen years, your emotional brain is overriding your self-control brain. That's the reality. In teen years, look, I'm sorry for those of you who are teenagers, you are basically not in control, which is why you need parents, by the way. And so the reality is that at that stage, in the dating stage, if you say, oh, I can go a little bit further, or we can go a little bit further, we can do a bit of fingering, we can do a bit of sort of uh, deep kissing, it's hard to stop once your emotional brain gets into that roller coaster. So recognize the cues when you're with someone and pull back. Or if you notice that person getting aroused, pull back. That's the kind of physiology brain thing. Second thing is set practical limits. What kind of practical yeah. limits do you think you might have advised your children? Or, or what did you guys set when you're dating? Well, with, with our children, we, we used to have family meetings um, regularly, family nights every week. And uh, every month or so, we would have a family meeting where we would discuss important issues like where are we going to go on holiday, you know, um, and this dating thing came up. I remember one night, uh, Laura, I think it was Laura, yeah, she said, it's not fair, you've told us we can't date anybody, or we can't have a boyfriend until we're 18, until we've finished high school. 
And I was like, yeah, right. And uh, <laughs> so, and she said, well, it's not fair because everybody else in my class has got a boyfriend. And she was 16 at the time. I said, oh, really? Who? And she said, well, uh, Jolene has got a boyfriend, right? And who else? You know, so she could only name one, really. But, but we, we had this discussion where we ended up saying, well, all right, you can have a boyfriend, but you must bring him home to meet dad first, right? That was the thing. You must bring him home. And uh, because if he couldn't bring him home, there was something wrong. So, and that, that led into a whole um, boundary thing, or why shouldn't you have sex before you're married? And... Uh, it was interesting because we had that discussion why you shouldn't have sex and you touched on it this morning where you said you leave a part of yourself with that other person. So a little while after this, it was probably a couple of years later, I think Emma was 17 at the time, um, she came home and told me this story. And I was so proud of her because when I was 17, I didn't have a theology of sex for myself. I was the only girl in my class who was a virgin at the time when I was 17. And when they asked me, why are you still a virgin, I couldn't answer them. I said, um, I don't know. The only thing I could answer was I didn't want to disappoint my parents, right, because I'd been brought up that way, because we didn't talk about sex, right, so I didn't really know why. Um, anyway. <laughs> but I remember Emma coming home from uh, TAFE, where she was studying at the time, and she said to me that her girlfriends had asked her why we trusted her to stay at her boyfriend's house in Sydney. We were living on the Central Coast at the time. Why we trusted her to, to stay at her boyfriend's house and why we trusted her that she wasn't sleeping with her boyfriend. Because we're going, why do you not sleep with your boyfriend? Really? Uh, I wish my parents would trust me like that. And, uh, and so Emma, d d she went into her bag and she brought out two pieces of paper, which happened to be a pink piece and a yellow, uh, blue piece, and she stuck them together with a piece of glue, and she, she's teaching these girls, who are her peers, all 17-year-olds, she said, well, look, when you stick these two pieces of paper together, you know, um, if I was to tear them apart, and she, she ends up tearing them apart, and there's bits of the blue on the pink, and bits of the pink on the blue, and she said, see, that's what happens when you sleep with someone, you leave part of yourself with that other person, and they leave part of themselves with you in, your, in your soul kind of thing. And the girls were kind of like, wow. One of them said, wow, that's why I feel so broken and so scattered. And, and, and that, I was so proud of Emma. I thought, good on you, girl. I, I, I was so proud of her. Amazing. So that just came from a conversation two years or three years previous to that when she was, if Laura was 16, she would have been 14. And she heard the conversation at the table about boyfriends and why you shouldn't sleep together. So yeah. no, just being honest and really open, I think, brings great reward, I think. So this is the thing about giving them those signposts from the time they're really young. Yes. You've given them the value system, the foundation to make those decisions. Yeah. So they know, I mean, yeah. she's with her boyfriend, but she knows her boundaries. Mm. And probably, I mean, you like saying you wouldn't get into a room alone and shut the door because that's tempting yourselves. I mean, you know, when you're in that high emotion. Right. So you've yeah. given her those signposts to make the decisions. Yes. That's what we can do. Yes. 
That's great. We kind of touched on this, and this is a great question. How does sleeping with multiple partners affect you mentally, emotionally, and physically? And then how does it then have a flow-on effect into your future relationships as well? I'll just give you a quick one. I'm aware of the time now. Because um, I was doing, when I retired in seven years ago, for the first five years or so, I was also doing sex therapy consultations. But I was only seeing Christian couples because... That was plenty with my writing and my speaking. And I would see young couples, Christians, where one of them would say, I really love my spouse, husband, wife, but I can't forget the ones I've been with before. Or I can't forget the porn I saw even when I was 12 years old. So having sex, you see, remember, it's a bonding act. It forms like little video clips in your brain. Can you be forgiven? Can you wash them out? Yes, with time and rewiring your brain with healthy intimacy, it it will work. But little bits of it still remain. And see, there are couples who love each other, but you still need to work through that, and it doesn't happen overnight. So it stays with you, experience. This is what we now call neuroplasticity. Your brain gets wired. You know, in Ephesians, um, Philippians, Philippians 4.8, the Apostle Paul said, whatever is good and pure and healthy and praiseworthy, think about these things. So even thinking 2,000 plus years ago, the Apostle Paul said, your brain will be affected by it. So thinking and doing things affects your brain. So beware what you do in your youth because it has long-standing consequences. Even though God promises to renew the mind, why take the chances? This is what we say to young people. Good. Anything else you want to add to that? Oh, I think it's all great. You guys are you guys are awesome. Yeah, what she said. <laughs> I think it's really important for a for a church, you know, like yours. I, I I want to just really commend you for doing this, for actually opening it up as a discussion, because people like me come and go. You know, I can come, say all these things, you know, these old subcontinental sexologists, and just breeze out. But you, the leaders of the church, you are taking the responsibility and the God-given duty to say, we as a church are willing to support you here. And so that's a powerful thing. Because if there are people here who are struggling with porn or have had sex and are feeling, how do I get over these feelings? I need help. Then, you know, you are there. To support them. And I think that is the important thing, really. That's awesome. Well, we're out of time for for the session now. So I'd just love to pray because, you know what, in a world that we live today, we are constantly bombarded with either sexual images or just the kind of thinking that you're you're weird if you don't have sex, sex with people or you don't think this way. And we can kind of really be kind of bashed by our culture and it really does take an inner strength to say you know what I'm going to live as the Bible's called me to live and so I'd really love to pray for you and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll break and have lunch so Lord Jesus I just thank you for all the wisdom and all the gems that we've just learned in this, in this session together Lord and I pray Lord God that you give us strength on the inside to be able to live how you've called us to live biblically Lord 
I pray when it comes to relationships that we'd have your view of a relationship and your understanding on that and your wisdom on that, Lord. And I pray as we go out into our world that we would, we would lean into people with grace, with love, with acceptance, but at the same time we would hold our convictions and we would be strong in what we believe and what we are called to, to, to live like as a Christian, Lord, I pray. And we thank you for all that we've learned. Help us to put it into practice in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Well, as we've already mentioned, there is resources available from Dr. Patricia's books that are just up in the table there as we have our lunch break now. We will come back at about 12.45 and everybody will come in together and then we'll, uh, we'll explain what's going to happen with breaking up for the electives. So feel free to head out to the cafe, grab some lunch and we'll be back shortly.